March 26th, 2009. It would be the last morning that they would ride up on the cable car together. Shane McConkie and J.T. Holmes were heading up over 900, uh, over 9,000 feet to the summit, deep in the back uh, slopes of the Alps in Italy. They had their ski gear with them, but this is not a place that you would see skiers. Typically, the people that went up on the top of this summit were those that were looking for sightseeing or maybe some hiking, because on the top of the summit, it was surrounded by cliffs all the way around. As they got to the top, they strapped into their skis, and they skied down 300 vertical feet. Before the snow started to get hard and icy, they stopped, and they took off their skis and put on their crampons and started traversing across a narrow ledge on the side. It had snowed the night before, and so there was a bit of snow still on the edge. And one of their steps triggered a slight avalanche that went over the edge and fell several hundred feet. It was enough to remind them of the danger that took place in each step that they took. For Shane, this was nothing new. Even as a kid, in the backpack of his mom's, as they would go skiing, he would say, bump, mommy, bump, and he wanted her to roll through the moguls, and he would continue skiing himself, competitively, started racing, and it just fueled desire. He wanted to go faster and faster. Every limit he broke, he wanted to go farther. He wanted to jump higher, get more flips. It fueled just more and more in him. In fact, he had been base jumping, parachuting. He had done almost every extreme sport you could think of. Now he and JT were set out to do something that no one else had ever done either. They were the only two that were currently doing it. It was about 2 p.m. when they finally got to the spot where they were trying to get to. They used their avalanche shovels to build a small kicker ramp that would go directly over the cliff. The moments they had as they were preparing, they took rocks and threw it over the edge, and they would count one, two, three, about 11 seconds before they heard it hit the bottom over the cliff. They calculated in their mind and thought, we have 1,400 feet before we hit the ground. And JT, as he looked out, saw the trees and they looked small and that gave him a little bit more comfort, maybe a little more room, a little more margin. And finally, it was about 5.30. The film crew that was with them ready to capture this was set. And these guys were going to put on their skis, strap them on, go over the cliff, pull a release lever, drop their skis. They were also wearing a wingsuit, so they would look a lot like a flying squirrel as they opened their arms to glide before their chute would finally go off. Nobody else was doing a ski base wingsuit jump. These two are the only ones, and no one had ever done it from this spot before. As they continued on, JT went first. He radioed over the radio, dropping, did six curves, went over, pulled two back flips, opened his arms, and soared for about 15 to 20 seconds before his chute popped open. But he noticed the trees that he saw were actually smaller trees. They didn't actually look smaller. He didn't think much of that as he turned around and put his cam back to capture Shane as he came over. But Shane never came. Shane had gone over and gone off the jump, and as he was in the air, pulled the release, and only his right ski had released, getting tangled up on his left ski. At that kind of speed, it took him into a just incredible tailspin, one that he couldn't pull his chute on. 
He continued to struggle to get it off and finally did get both skis off, but that was already nine seconds into the jump. Going 110 miles an hour, there just wasn't enough room. His friends said he went out with his ski boots on. That's how he would have wanted it. Just kind of reminds me of the desire to continue to push the limits, to continue to try and go farther and farther in is a lot like the insatiable desire we have with sin, isn't it? The farther we get, the more it invites us to pull us in, to go deeper, desperately hungering for more, and yet the farther we get, the more we realize destruction is right around the corner. So I like our chapter that we're going to be following in Judges today. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 16 of Judges. And in this book, we're going to see the final story of Samson. Now, this is pretty incredible to me that the story of Samson is more fleshed out. It's more detailed. There's more time given to it than any other character in the book of Judges. But honestly, it's a really sad story. But at the end of the story, we find something that will blow your minds. Remember, as we get into this too, God had given a covenant to his people that they should follow and keep, and he promised they would experience prosperity and security as they adhered to the covenant. But then we see all through the book of Judges cycles of sin, where they walk in sin, they get oppressed by an enemy. Finally, God brings up a a leader to free them. They, They repent, turn to God, and then the cycle starts over yet again. Last week in chapter 15, we saw that The Israelites themselves had captured their judge, turned him over to the Philistines, acknowledging themselves that the Philistines were the ones ruling over them. And so this judge, this leader, this warrior, this one who had been promised before he was even born to be the one that would rescue Israel. Let's see where we find him now. Judges chapter 16, verse 1. And Samson went to Gaza. Now Gaza was a large ancient city on the Mediterranean coast. It was on a main trade route that would go down to Egypt. And it was not a place that you would just happen to come to as an Israelite. Samson is now deep into the southwest territory of the Philistines. The question that you have to ask is, why in the world is Samson there? It goes on to say, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he went, but it sure tells us what he does when he gets there. He goes to see a prostitute. Of course he does. It's Samson. This is par for the course. He's continued to make bad decisions all along. Why should this decision surprise us? uh, It's interesting that we also see that word saw, because that got him into trouble before. Remember Judges chapter 14, when he wanted a wife? And it tells us that he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. So what's he tell his parents? Verse 3, Judges chapter 14, go and get her for me, for she is right in my own eyes. She looks good. It's what I want to do. I'm going to continue to indulge it. Beautiful women have been Samson's Achilles heel. And we're going to see it yet again. But most people don't wake up and just make the decision that Samson just made right here. It starts in small ways. It starts with just that little emotional connection with someone. It starts as I pause as I'm scrolling and I click on that picture. It it starts as I send that text. Those little ways that start to push the limits and before we know it, we find ourselves doing something we never thought we would do. 
But before we just bounce past this verse into the story, let's pause and remember this. God has a plan for holiness in our lives. God's not just some cosmic killjoy that's trying to ruin all of your fun. It's because God understands the devastation that sin brings, the devastation that sexual sin brings into your life. And he also understands the life and the freedom that comes in walking in holiness according to his plan. So we could very easily just keep moving and go right past this, but let me share a couple stats with you. Do you realize that in our country, in our nation, porn sites receive more website traffic than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, LinkedIn, and Pinterest combined? More. In 2019, one porn site recorded that every minute there were 80,000 porn searches. In one year, there were 42 billion searches on just that one site. And there are loads and loads of sites. There's more access, more content, more involvement with porn in our day now than ever before in history. And the statistics would say it's not just outside this room. It's in here too. I'm not trying to do this to shame anyone. I'm not trying to point a finger. But church, we have to recognize the holiness that God has called us into. We have to realize that this sin will destroy your life and will destroy the life of others. And it's not just limited to that. I can send a text. I can move in. I can cross the boundary in a million different ways and live outside of God's plan. And it always destroys. It promises it won't hurt, but that promise is always a lie. So what do I do? Maybe that's you in here this morning. Start with this. Recognize it. Call it what it is. It's sin. It's there to destroy your life. So recognize it, but not, don't stop there. Repent. Acknowledge to God that you desire to turn from that sin. And involve others in that to understand. James chapter 5 says this. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. Why? Because the way that we grow is in community. Bring it into light. Let others journey beside you. Maybe it's somebody in your life group that you trust, that you could say, hey, I've got a struggle. Can I share it with you? I need somebody praying with me. I need somebody helping me. Maybe you could come on a Friday night to celebrate recovery. Every Friday night, we have a group that meets, that works through hurts and habits and hangups and journeys together in community to live in freedom. We have pure desire groups here at the church that are set up to help people experience freedom in this area and not live bound in bondage. So recognize it, repent, and then renew your desire to lean on God's strength and not your own. Because there's no way that you can do it on your own strength. You'll try and try and try again, but you'll never break through. We need God. So as we move into verse two, it says the Gazites were told Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. So he enters into Gaza. Let's just say that he wasn't really a welcome guest to the Philistines. Maybe recount a little bit of what he's done. Just a chapter, remember that incident with the donkey? Yeah, the jawbone and a thousand dead Philistines. 
Or what about uh, the fox and the, that he's just torched their food supply and ruined their economy? Are those those other guys, the 30 guys that he killed and took their clothes, their garments, right? To say that Samson wasn't welcome there would be the understatement of the century. So what do they do? They hear he's there, they lock the gates, and they hide out waiting to ambush him, waiting to take him out. Verse 3 goes on to say, But Samson laid till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now the gates in an ancient city were much more than just an entrance and exit out of the city. This was a place where the people would gather together. The markets would be held by the gates. City leaders would be there with them. Also, they would continue to be uh, having judges there that would hold court sessions at the gates. Important decisions would be made. Agreements would be made there. The, sa- the gates were extremely significant. They're also symbolic. They're symbolic of the security and the power of that city, often uh, ornately designed in massive gates. And they provided security. The only way in and out of a fortified city was through those gates or somehow over that wall. Samson wakes up and he goes, and those gates are locked. Now, another interesting thing to note and remember is that the word Gaza, the name of this town, means strong. And it's not just any Philistine city, it's the capital. Samson finds himself locked in the capital city of the Philistines. Now, what's he do? If it's me and I'm going against that gate and I run and I try and ram into it, I'm bouncing back like a ping pong ball. There's no way I'm getting through that thing. I'd expect Samson maybe to break the lock, maybe to bust the door open somehow, maybe even he's gonna get back and ram it and break it down. But Samson does something even more than that. The text tells us that he took hold of the doors, the gates, the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all. These ancient gates uh, would have these large pillars that would be hewn to a point, and they would set on a rock basin that would be hollowed out that would help it pivot and rotate. And on that, they would have these huge planks that would start to make up the door, put together by these beams, either of wood or of iron. The structures would have been massive and huge, noisy, and as Samson takes the entire structure out, places it on his back, and heads to Hebron. Hebron is 40 miles away. If you start in the west at Gaza and start making your way over to the Dead Sea, Hebron sets two-thirds of the way there. Now, the text tells us that he took them, uh, the doors on his shoulders all the way to the top of a hill that is in front of Hebron. Maybe your text says opposite of Hebron. The literal word is facing Hebron. So the author's intent is not to tell you distance, but what is taking place in here. Somewhere between Gaza and Hebron, he takes those doors, sets them up on a spot facing Hebron, and where does that leave the city of Gaza now? Extremely exposed. Extremely vulnerable. Not only do they have a gate that's maybe in ruin there, their gate is completely gone. What will they do next? I wonder what the people would think as they're laying in bed at night, trying to sleep, but knowing their security has been ripped out. It's gone. Maybe they're posting people there all night long because it's not going to get fixed instantly. It's going to take a while to rebuild some gates. I wonder what security you and I put our 
security in, our hope in. Maybe it's not gates, but maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's some kind of home, or maybe it's our savings. We can put our confidence in a lot of stuff. You can fill in the blank. And because of that, I feel rock solid. Psalms 20, verse 7 says this. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. I would add some in gates, some in stocks, some in stability. The list goes on and on and on. Some in health. But then the psalmist goes on to say, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Church, hear this. When we put our confidence in anything else other than God's strength, it's only a matter of time before that thing will crumble and fall. There's nothing outside of God that we can bolster our strength on. The author sets us up for the next story, which starts in verse 4. And after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak whose name was Delilah. Now we move from Gaza up north to the valley of Sorak. This is near the incident where the Jawbone Hill uh, took place. And it tells us that he meets a woman named Delilah. Now we're not told whether she's a Philistine or whether she's an Israelite. But I would assume that she's probably a Philistine for two reasons. Based on location, they're still in the Philistine territory, even though they're by the border. And Samson has a track record going for him. And finally, what happens next is there's some kind of connection with the leaders that's taking place. It's interesting who Samson continues to align his life with. Students, remember this. Who you choose to pursue in a relationship matters. It doesn't matter if you're 15 or if you're 50. Who you align your life with within a relationship matters. Samson continues to make a train wreck of his relationships because he's pursuing people that are not pursuing his God. So what happens? Verse five, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, that we may give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So now the Philistines don't just want to kill him. They want to capture him and they want to make him pay. They want to torment and torture him. So he's in love with this woman. She could have said, well, you got the wrong girl, right? And turn him away. But look at what she's facing. I mean, that kind of money, they would each give her that amount of silver. That's the kind of money that allows you to live like a king. You are set for the rest of your life. And these are the nation's leaders that are coming to you. You have power at your expose, at your uh, fingertips. And not only that, if you did this, you would be the national hero. You'd get popularity, you'd get fame. People would know you as the person that took down our enemy. So what does she decide to do? Verse six. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. What? What kind of question is this? Can you be any more clear with your intention of what you're trying to do? She could have totally done this differently. I, I would picture my wife coming in and be like, hey, Josh, how are you so strong? You've got the muscles of an ox. And I would just say, babe, 
I was just born this way. <laughs> She's never said that, not yet. Maybe after this message she will, I don't know. But, but Delilah's not even trying to paint a different picture. So how does Samson respond? Verse 7, Samson said to her, if they, ah, if they, he knows exactly what she's talking about. He knows the Philistines are after him. If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become as weak and be like any other man. Now note, you're going to see any other man a lot in here. See where Samson's at? He's so confident in his own strength, his own position. He's not worried at all. He's lost sight of where the strength has come from. He feels like it's a right of his. He's had so much success. God's given him a gift of strength to work through him, and yet he's taken that strength and used it all for his own selfish gain. In a sense, he's prostituted God's strength in him, this gift from God. But yet you see him so confident now. He didn't think anything could stop him. Sometimes we are the weakest when we're tired and worn down and we're falling into temptation. Sometimes we're at our weakest when we're having loads of success and we don't think anything can knock us down. Look what he does. He tells her to, to say uh, seven fresh bowstrings or maybe your translation says fresh cords. This means fresh intestines. Again, he's just trampling on the Nazarite vow that he should not touch a dead animal. So what happens? Verse 8. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up for her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, are you kidding me? He's still there. She's already shared her intentions. He's told her something. She's acted on him. And yet he's still sitting there listening to her yet again. Just blows my mind. Verse 11, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. New ropes. We know that's not going to work, right? Chapter 15, Verse 13, remember the Israelites had gathered Samson, tied him up with new ropes, and turned him over to the Philistines? What happened? He snapped right through them, killed those Philistines. Also, probably why we don't see anything mentioned about the Philistines coming out of hiding. I think they're waiting for him to make sure his strength is gone before they're even trying to get that guy. So each time they wait because they know if they come out of hiding, they know what he's going to snap next. Verse 13 goes on. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
So while he slept, Delilah took seven locks of his head and wove them into a web. And she made them tight with a pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep. And he pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. You notice that he's gotten closer now. Now he's telling a lie, but it's getting a little bit closer. The limit's a little bit closer. He wants to get that much closer to the edge. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. If you think you can't fall, be careful. You're at your weakest point. So last week, the Lucius went swimming, and we had a tube. If there's a tube in a swimming pool, inevitably, there's going to be king of the tube, right? So we'd take time, turns, getting on the tube, and try to push each other off. My son got on there, and he would kind of get set. And we would just wait until he kind of had his arms off the tube, and he felt pretty confident. And then we would attack instantly. When he thought he was at his best and could not be wavered, we would flip that tube, and he'd go flying. It's a lot like us in our lives when we think that we're untouchable, when we think we have it. But 1 Corinthians goes on to say, chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you. The word overtaken means grabbed hold of. It's like you're in the octagon ring and temptation's not passively sitting there waiting that you just hopefully might do something. It's grabbing at you. It's hoping to destroy and drag you down into sin. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Your God is there with you. Your God may allow tests into your life to build your faith, but your God will never tempt you. God is not trying to get you to fall into sin. James 1 tells us that. In verse 13 of James chapter 1, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Ah, but wait. Then he starts to tell us the game plan of temptation. If Samson would have only listened to this and realized what the enemy was trying to do to build into his destruction, he could have gotten out. It says in verse 14 in James chapter 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured. Now, let's use fishing to help us see where this transpires to. I've got a nice shiny lure. I throw it in the water. It splashes, and all of a sudden, that fish sees something out of his corner of his eye, catches a glimpse. It's not a sin yet. But temptation is letting, its way, letting itself know that it's there. It catches your eye. It says temptation lured and then enticed. That means to tell lies. That lure is sitting in the water saying, look at me. I taste incredibly wonderful. Right? It, it, if you eat me, you'll be satisfied. And then it goes on to say, by his own desires, which means it targets my selfishness. Your temptation will always be a target of that weakness. For Samson, we know exactly what that weakness was. So that lure starts to tell lies and hit at your weak point. Hey, you're hungry, aren't you? Why don't you just come grab a bite? And at that point, James progresses on talking about this temptation. It says, then desire when it has conceived. This means it gets me thinking about it. All of a sudden, that fish starts to turn and say, I'm just going to go a little bit closer and check it out. All the while, still no sin but drawing in closer and closer. It says it gives birth to sin. The fish thinks, I'll just take one bite. That's it, just one bite. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The hook is set, 
and destruction has been accomplished. Now, it would be hopeless, but we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. At the end of verse 13, it says this, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's telling us that there is a way out, that God handcrafts the way to get out of temptation the moment that we stop and say, God, I need help. Get me out of this. I don't want to fall into this sin. If Samson would have just recognized and had a heart of humble enough to seek God's strength in that, how the story could have been different. But he tells her what it is in verse 15. She goes on to say, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all of his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. He's getting worn down. She uses love. Verse four tells us that he loved her and now she's using her love, but these guys know nothing of love because their love is so selfish. It's not selfless. They're only in this relationship to see what they can get, what they can gain, not what they can give. He's using her to bolster his ego. The Bible never tells us that he was good looking. Never tells us that he was big, like it describes Goliath. In fact, he keeps saying, I'll be like any other man without the strength. So it seems like his whole identity is wrapped up in the strength, and he's using her to both bolster his identity, and also he's using her and her bed. She's trying to use him for the things that she can gain. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. The trap's been set, and Samson, even after telling her this, stays. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up again, for he has told me all of his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her, and they brought money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees. She called a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his head. She began to torment him, and strength had left him. She said, Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as other times to shake myself free. This might be the saddest verse in this whole story that we read next. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He was so far gone, so selfish, so uh, inward focused that he had forgotten the source of strength and he didn't even realize that the presence of weakness was there. And the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes and they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in prison. What an incredible picture that's taken place. He tells Delilah what's happened. Alcohol has been a part of the story all throughout. It wouldn't be that far off to imagine. Maybe he's had too much drink. He's passed out. She calls somebody in. He's there on her lap. They cut his hair. That's it. Game over. As he wakes up, he doesn't have this strength that he's just thought to be his right now. It's gone. Isn't it interesting how the author turns the story back around. 
These eyes that have caused him so much harm are now plucked out. He's taken back to Gaza, where he tried to show incredible strength in that. He's not torching fields along the way. In fact, he goes back there to grind the grain from those fields. He's weak. He's like any other man. Even worse, he's a slave now. Verse 22, the author puts this little comma in to show us that the story is not done. It says, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. The hair of his head began to grow again. The hair was not what brought Samson's strength. It's not the source of Samson's strength. God is the source of Samson's strength. The hair was a symbol of the vow, of the promise, of the covenant that he had made as a Nazarite to live a certain way for God. And yet Samson has trampled and broken that promise and that vow his entire life, time and time again. And yet this God is a promise-keeping God. This God is a God that will keep his vow. Chapter 13, verse 7, God promised that this Nazarite, Samson, would be a Nazarite to the day of his death. Two verses before that, in verse 5 of chapter 13, he promised that Samson would be the one to save Israel from the Philistines. And our God does not break his promises. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifices to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice and sit. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Listen to how much praise is happening in these couple verses. Imagine if only Samson would have used his strength to cause Israel to praise their God in this way. Verse 24, and when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravenger of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, meaning when they were plastered, they said, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All of the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. There Samson is in Dagon's temple, in the enemy, in the middle of sin and wickedness, which he has partaken in his whole life. But now he sits there as a slave, understanding the destruction of all of this sin. And as he sits in there, everyone that was someone is in this room. Massive place for this temple. All of the officials are there. The who's who of the Philistines are there. And on the roof, 3,000 people. It would be like if we took this whole room, packed it out, every seat, and used the balcony as well, sitting up there. This is the kind of room that if this place goes down, this whole nation is disrupted. All the leaders gone, the influential people gone, massive amounts of people gone. So what happens? Verse 28. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested, And he leaned his weight against them. 
his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol. And in the tomb of Manoah, his father, and he had judged Israel 20 years. In verse 28, we find only the second prayer recorded from Samson in this story. And honestly, I have trouble with the prayer. It's still selfish, it seems. He's not trying to give God glory. He wants revenge for his eyes. He wants to go out. But there are some interesting clues within this. He says, O Lord God. He says, O Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh, this term of endearment that the people would use to their God, the true God. Adonai, meaning sovereign. As he prays on, he uses God's name again, but this time he uses Elohim, which means the ruler and the judge, the true God. There's something that has taken place in Samson's heart, and were it not for Hebrews, I don't think I would understand exactly what God's doing in this picture. Hebrews chapter 12 says, to set our eyes on Jesus. Could it be now that Samson, without his sight, is now seeing more clearly than he ever has? His need for God, his own weakness. Hebrews 11 goes on to talk about all these heroes of the faith in the chapter before. Continue to say, by faith, by faith. And when we get to verse 32 in Hebrews, it says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me if Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promise, stopped the mouths of the lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. Samson's story is a sad story. It's the kind of story that makes your stomach turn. It's a story that is a mess and filled with horrible choices. It's a lot like the story of Israel, but also it's a story to help us look in the mirror and see our stories are found in this. And we're not the rescuer, we're not the hero. But in the midst of this, also a story of an incredibly faithful God. A God that is faithful to us, even when we are unfaithful to him. A God that is standing with open arms, waiting for that moment that we will stop and repent and turn to him. Even though we might not do it perfectly, even though we will never be perfect, he's ready to move in and help us as we grow in what it looks like to follow him. Samson was Israel's judge, but Israel needed a better judge. And one day one would come. He too would be announced before his birth. This judge would come, and he had power, but he didn't use his power against people. He used it to heal, and he used it to give oppression over darkness. This judge too would be betrayed for silver, much, much less silver. And this judge, too, would die, but in his death, he would provide a way so that everyone could live. What a faithful God. 
God, thank you so much that in the midst of our mess, you continue to be faithful. God, we don't deserve it. We'll never earn it. There's nothing we could do to obtain it. Simply a gift from you. God, help us to be a church that longs to walk in holiness, not trample on your grace. Use your spirit in our lives today to show us those areas of temptation that we continue to indulge. Help us to turn to you and lean on your strength to walk in freedom. God, thank you that you are a faithful God no matter what. Thank you that we can call you our God. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I am 31 years old, and I just did six and a half years incarcerated uh, here at NSP in Lincoln and some in Tecumseh. And um, I guess the biggest destroyer of my life has been addiction, right? Uh, addiction to drugs, uh, money, sex, um, you know, really anything that I can fill that void with. Um, I, I used to to the extreme and and that led me to my incarceration my drug addiction did and um, I would make these goals uh, that I would just uh, finish what I had and then uh, that would be the end of it or I would go to sleep that night and that would be the end of it and I'd wake up a different person and it never worked out um, it's not that I didn't want to it's just that I couldn't um, I mean I started using when I was uh, when I was 11 years old and um, you know, like 20 years, about 20 years of drug addiction just run rampant in my life. It, it didn't really matter <clears throat> what anybody else needed or wanted. It was just all about Eli. And uh, it was a very, very uh, lonely place to be. You know, and I, I've come to Jesus many times in my life, right? Uh, the difference is uh, I would feel like most times in the past it's been in a jail cell on my knees I'm in deep deep danger right I'm in trouble and I need you right but I just need you right now right once you get me out of this then I'll take back the wheel I don't I you know I have this weird image of you know me and Jesus riding into the car together and he's driving and I'm tuning the radio, and uh, you know, I looked over at him. I said, "You know what? I think I'd like to drive." And and he says, "Are you sure?" And I said, "Yeah, I think I, I'm pretty sure I got it." And he gets in the passenger side, and I slide over in the driver's seat, and you know, he puts his seatbelt on and straps his helmet on, and he says, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And I said, "Yeah, I think I do." And off we go. I was at the work release center here in Lincoln and I was getting drug intox write-ups and I was about to be sent back to prison. Uh, and I started going to recovery meetings, right? At first, just because I wanted to make it look like I was doing the next right thing, right? And, uh, and the more I sat in there and listened to other people, I, you know, there was one individual when he spoke, it just really, it really hit me here. And, uh, so I came to a point where I pulled up on him. I said, hey, man, I, I'm lost. I need some help. 
there was a handful of things in my life, right, that no other person on this planet knew that, that I had done that had been done to me. Um, and I've told myself my whole life that I would never share that with another person. Uh, but it came to a point in our relationship where we were able to sit down, just me, him, and a tree. And I let those things go. Right? These huge barriers that were keeping me from moving forward, you know, it was like carrying 45 pound weights around my neck for years. And um, I have had probation officers, judges, lawyers, parents, friends, teachers all try and get me to turn my life around, to get clean, to stay clean. Um, but nobody could remove that obsession and compulsion to use, right? Um, until I surrendered, until I surrendered and I asked for help. And because of that, my obsession and compulsion to use drugs has been lifted. And I've been clean for a little over nine months. Um, and that's the truth, you know, I mean, I did six and a half years in prison and I used the whole time I was in there because I couldn't stop. We will never be good enough. Right? Um, that one step out in faith right, um, allowed me to get to where I am today, to be sitting here in front of you, ready to make a declaration that I've given my life to the Lord and I'm ready to live for Jesus. I needed his grace. I needed his forgiveness. Um, I needed to know, you know, that he loved me just as the way I was, right? Uh, even as messed up and as lost as I was, that he loved me and that he was waiting for me, you know, to reach out to him and to, uh, to give my life over. Um, and it only took 31 years. But I've come to learn that the more I put into his hands and just and let him uh, let him drive the car, uh, the safer I am. Like I said, he has a plan for my life that's greater than anything that I could imagine. Uh, and I want to know what that plan is.